The Moments That Make Us podcast is produced on Gadigal land, as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to The Moments That Make Us, a brand new Women's Agenda podcast that explores those fork-in-the-road moments that change our lives. We'll be delving into the life-altering moments of some of Australia's most prominent women and hearing about the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Shivani Gopal, the host of Moments That Make Us, a podcast series made possible thanks to the support of Stellar Insurance. In our very first episode, I'm excited to be joined by a best-selling author, chart-topping podcast host, and one of Australia's leading coaches for female executives and entrepreneurs, Kemi Neckpreville. From a childhood of survival in the foster care system, to a stint as a professional actor, and time as a baker and career coach, Kemi's life has been full of twists and turns and diverse experiences. Now, she's shaping a new paradigm for women in leadership and life, helping them to ask for what they want without apology. Kemi, welcome. I want to dive right into things and I want to dive into a pivotal moment that no doubt shaped you. You were part of an education program that enabled Nigerian parents to ensure an English education for their children. Now, as I understand it, that journey saw you born and educated in England with five sets of foster parents, some, as you say, incredibly loving and some not so much. How have those experiences made you the woman you are today? Oh, so many experiences there. Um, It means that I am, I wasn't very good at this, but I'm now very good at letting go of people and circumstances. And what I mean by that is I very much believe in that idea of relationships are for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And I love that because one thing it has me be is very present in the relationships that I'm in, knowing that this is what this is right now and I'm going to absorb all of this and nourish this in whatever way I can, knowing that through life relationships also shift and change. So that's one thing I learned. I also learned that You know, blood is not necessarily thicker than water in terms of family and that you can create family anywhere you go. And I think as adults, it's incredibly important, actually, that we do create relationships that ignite and empower us. I feel very blessed to still have a relationship with my first foster mother and my last foster mother and with my birth mother. And all of those mothers have contributed to me in different ways. So they're the first two things that come to mind. What an incredibly enriching way to describe that, Kemi. I mean, I already in these couple of minutes that you and I have been speaking, of course, now and and behind the scenes, as they say, can already tell, you know, the power of your positivity in the way that you have shaped those experiences and in the meaning that you've added to it. When you talk about relationships, I had to write it down because it was so darn good season, reason, or a lifetime. I think we beat ourselves up so much and we unnecessarily make things about ourselves, right? Oh, that person's not talking to me. Maybe something that I've done. Maybe maybe I've given this person an idea about me. Maybe I've contributed to a relationship breaking down. And I love the way that you've just surmised it to give it meaning, to give it a greater purpose that is bigger than you and them. Season, reason, or a lifetime. I absolutely 
Love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for giving that sense of positivity and also that richness around the experience that you can have by having three mothers. <laughs> well, six altogether in the end. And also to add to that, Shivani, I have to say that was not my phrase. That is, I'm not sure who said that phrase, but I found it very helpful. And I think part of it, partly because if we're in the world of professional and personal growth, we will let go of people and people will let go of us. And I think that once we can accept that, it actually makes for a more nourishing experience of life and relationships. Mm, It absolutely does. And I want to touch on that topic of growth, because in order to grow into the women that we eventually become, and of course, I, I usually talk about the fact that we never just find ourselves. I think that is absolute crap. We're constantly finding ourselves. You know, life is a journey. We don't just, you know, jump on a plane, go to Europe and have this, you know, three month holiday and suddenly find ourselves and have have epiphanies. It is constantly a journey. And so I love that you talked about that concept of growth. But that concept of growth is so tied to our sense of identity. And I've struggled with this. And in some ways I can relate, not quite, because of course I've grown up with a very stable home with my parents. So I certainly didn't have those five sets of foster parents and those lessons that have come from that. But I can relate to being, you know, a brown woman growing up in a white world. And as you say, you know, a a black woman growing up in a white world, I often talked about the fact of having a mirror with two reflections. You know, I came home and I was the, the Indian girl when I looked in the mirror. I went outside into the big wide world and I was the patriotic Australian girl that just happened to look very, very different to to everyone else. But Kemi, when you went back home, you were also, you know, to your safe haven, you were going into an identity that was by and large all white. How did you fuse together your sense of identity through those experiences? I think we're always fusing together our identity, to be honest. You know, I feel now that one of the gifts that I bring to the work that I do is that I can walk in both of those worlds, but not as a black woman or not as a you know middle class woman, but as Kemi. And I'm 47 now, and it has taken me many, many years to get to that point. I share in my latest book a story of where I have been told a lot as a young person, when you're with black people, you know, they're your people, they're your people, while at the same time having this kind of microaggression around you're a black one, but you're a good one. So that was all very, actually, it wasn't even confusing, to be honest. It was not confusing. I just thought that was the truth. I had no one else telling me anything different. So then I grew up, and that's the internalised racism that I talk about in the book with black people are bad, but I'm a good one. So I must remain good and I must make sure that I'm good so that I don't get moved on to the next family. So then I remember just hearing this when I actually did find myself that wasn't kind of a group of family that were black and just a group of other teenagers. And I remember when I opened my mouth to share something and one of them said, oh, you're a coconut. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I did remember that I definitely did not belong to them, although I'd been told that I should and I would belong to them. And I remember traveling home on the train and thinking, okay, so I don't belong to the white people and I don't belong to the black people. So I'm going to have to belong to myself first. And that was definitely a moment that made me that I don't have to try and fit into other people's ideas of what someone that looks like me should be. And to be honest, Yvonne, as you shared earlier, that's an ongoing thing. The amount of times I have to say to people, I have no interest in misogynistic hip hop. I prefer Mm. Dolly Parton. You know, people, that's me owning my identity. It's like, that's just how it is. 
And I love that, right, because you're also breaking down stereotypes, yeah. the sense that, oh, you know, you are a black woman, so you must be into R&B music, you must be into hip-hop. Yeah. And for you to fit in, it was probably very tempting for you to just sit into that box. I imagine there was a huge level of discomfort to break out of those moles and just be like, I'm not going to choose any of those, I'm going to choose me. And then it's, what does me look like? And, and you're constantly creating chemi, I imagine. Yeah, I think we always have to be constantly creating ourselves. That's what growth is. And it's actually a core value of mine. You know, I'm also an endurance runner. And I have this idea that the, the woman that starts on the start line is not the same person that's going to cross the finish line 42 kilometers, 100 kilometers later, because I'm open to the experiences along the way that are going to change me with every step. And that's a good metaphor for life. If we're willing to do this work of personal growth, which is not about dancing through the meadows with daisies through our teeth, skipping gaily. I mean, I'm sure there are moments of that, but it's more about the confronting work of looking at what are the narratives that I have believed about myself, either because of family overlays or societal overlays or gender overlays, and what are the ones that I need to now recreate for myself and what are the ones that are harmful that I need to let go of. And that is not quick. That's not a 21 days to identity that is an ongoing job. And I joke with my clients often, personal development work, it's annoying because once you start, it's ongoing. You're, you're opening up Pandora's box and that box has no bottom. It yeah. just keeps on going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're strapped in for the ride, but you're all the richer for it. And so are your family members as well, because Kimmy, you take your entire family on this journey with you. You you quite actively even talk to your husband around, you know, setting intentions on, on weekends away and spreading that work on yourself to others. Yeah, I think, it, look, I have to sometimes say to my husband, actually, I always say this to my husband, I think any of us that work in supporting other people have to be really mindful that we don't become that person everywhere. You know, so I remember actually one of my sisters, I'm the eldest of seven, and one of my sisters said to me a few years ago, can you be my coach? And I said, no, I kind of really need you as a sister. Can, can we be sisters <laughs> instead? Um, and with my husband as well, sometimes he'll say something to me or share something with me and I will say, do you want me to be your wife or do you want me to be your coach? And then he can choose because it's, it's very different. You know, the wife will say, I cannot believe that happened today. And the coach will ask a question. The wife has an opinion and possibly advice, whereas the coach will ask a question or reflect back something that has been said before. But I feel very blessed. I've got teenagers now, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. And they I've heard my youngest, my 16-year-old, talk to their friends. And it's so interesting because I would never say this to them because, you know, they're 16, but I hear them coaching their friends. I hear them not giving them advice so much, but asking them questions. I think coaching is incredibly empowering for people. It's more empowering than giving advice. It really is. It's a hard shift to make, though. It's so tempting to, to simply give advice. And I want to touch on something that you talked about earlier, because, of course, your frame of mind is so positive. And you were talking about, you know, your relationships with your husband and, you know, are you going to play coach? Are you, are you going to be, you know, wife? And often when we're working on ourselves, as you were saying, it's, it's so important that we're containing that. How do you balance not accidentally positivity bombing someone? Oh, I never, oh, I never positivity bomb anyone. I find it is so much more powerful for us to admit exactly what is going on. I remember when that kind of whole positivity movement came into play, I didn't really know what it was about it that didn't really resonate for me. I think it's because I've, I've had a very long spiritual practice. So I've been doing meditation and yoga for 25 years now. And I just know that there is power in owning what is going on, not pretending there's something else going on. 
I think for a lot of people that was really stripped down in COVID, you know, this idea of how are you became, no, how are you really? For me and with the clients I work with, one of the things that I feel privileged to do is to create a space of no judgment so that my clients turn up however they are today. It's not about, I don't have this kind of what we call now kind of bro coaching of like, what's the goal? How are you going to smash it? Yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. I'm just like, my client will bring what they have to bring and that's what we go to work on. They may not be in a space emotionally or mentally where they can create goals or they want to. It may be a celebration call. So for me, we have to be very careful of positivity. I would rather that someone is present. That's the other P. Mm. That someone is present and being able to own their feelings because as we know now, I think there's a book which has come out called Toxic Positivity. I think it can do more harm than good. I think it's gone a little bit too far the other way. It's interesting. You, you talked about those two P's. I want to throw a third P in there and that is perfectionism mm. because you've talked a little bit about this in your work, that sense of having to be the good one, the sense of having to prove your worth and to be really good so that you felt that you could stay when you were growing up through all these foster families. And, you know, women, you know, 70% of people, you know, talk about feeling a sense of imposter syndrome. Primarily women talk about feeling a sense of imposter syndrome. And so we're constantly, as, you know, Dr. Brene Brown would say, hustling for our worth. How do you move away from that and how have you drawn upon your own, you know, story to do that? I think that is what it is, isn't it? I think it is, as Brené says, this idea of hustling for our worth. So I spent so many years doing that. And now I have no intention of doing that. I do feel blessed in that I have never, ever suffered from perfectionism. I have had a sense of not feeling worthy, but I I think as a creator, you know, I'm, some, I'm a writer, I create, I'm really happy to do the best I can. That's always been my focus. I don't have a harsh inner critic, maybe because the criticism that I've had outside of me, you know, in regard to race growing up, meant that I actually created a kind inner voice for myself. I'm not sure, but I'm kind to myself. And so in terms of hustling for my worth now, I feel very lucky, one, because I'm in midlife. So I'm just sort of, maybe I only have 30 years left. Like, I do not want to spend my time proving to anyone that I'm worthy of being in a space. But on the other side of that is if I ever found myself in a room now where I felt that default, because I'm human, you know, I can walk into a certain room and just feel like, oh, I know how this is going to go. Like example, I was, I couldn't do it. I was unavailable, but I was asked to do a speaking event for 400 men in finance. And I just remember thinking, okay, I can feel a trigger around that, you know, this sense of what power is and feeling like I'm going to be the only female in the room and then the person of color in the room. And is it safe for me to be in that room? There would have been a time when I would have thought, I have to do it. They've asked me, I need to go. It's a measure of something. I need to put myself in that situation. And I was unavailable, as I said, but if I wasn't unavailable, I would have just said no. Mm. And, and what's really unfortunate about being the absolute minority in those situations is that we feel as though we can't possibly stuff up. It sounds like, Kemi, you don't suffer from this. I certainly used to suffer from, from this. When, when I was the only woman in the room or the only woman of color in the room, I felt like I couldn't possibly stuff up because if I did, I was representing my entire gender and my entire race and people would be like, well, see, there you go. That's why you don't hire women or that's why you don't hire an Indian woman, you know. And, you yeah. know. <laughs> so the pressure was on, you know. Yeah, 100%. And I think I definitely felt that I remember in my younger years, because of this whole thing of like, I have to be a good one. 
I would jump up out of bus seats if someone came on. They didn't need to be an elderly person. Just if I was in a seat and another person got on, I felt like I had to demonstrate to everyone, look, I am good. Look, we are good people. I'm not one of the bad ones. And I think for those of us that are marginalised, those of us that are minorities, we have to be willing to look at these internal narratives we have around how we have to be in spaces about representing a whole body of people. I'm married to a white man, middle-class white man, who's also a lawyer, so ticks a lot of boxes and is able-bodied and is cisgendered, like all of the things. And I definitely know that he does not feel that he represents all white, cisgendered, able-bodied men. You know, it's just never been something that he's had to take on. He's an individual and that's all that matters. And I know that we have to do a lot of work to break down our internal and external narratives around that. Yeah, so powerfully put. And yet another thing we share in common there, Kemi, I I too am married to a middle-aged white guy. He's going to be cringing if he hears this and and knows that I described him as a middle-aged white guy, but I do feel you there. (laughs) I want to talk about your incredibly diverse career. You are currently a keynote speaker. Of course, you have your own podcast. You've written three books. Um, You are one of Australia's most renowned coaches for women. But before that, you were in the food industry. I mean, can we just unpack a few things here? You know, time, space, mind space. So you need to give us some theory on how you possibly made this all happen. But also, this is the dream, Kemi. You know, I I work with so many women and, you know, the overarching dream is I don't just want to be, you know, strapped down to this one career or this one job that I've just happened to study for and I've happened to do a university degree for. I want to, to a certain extent, be a little bit of a career chameleon. I want to reinvent and I want to do other things and live an interesting life. But yet it doesn't happen for so many of us. How have you made that happen for you? It's such a good question and it's something I have been thinking about for a few years now and, you know, sort of going back to what I was talking about being fostered. One thing that I didn't get from having a stable family was this idea that I had to do a particular career or be a particular person to be loved by that family. Because my experience was one of always of moving, I know that it's okay to move. I know that you have to grieve and there is pain and challenge around that that actually to transition from one place to another as a choice, obviously I didn't have a choice as a child, so there was a lot of grief and, you know, everything around there. But as an adult, I think part of my lived experience in my childhood has allowed me to follow what I have loved. So I wasn't a chef and a baker at the same time, obviously now as being a keynote speaker. But what happened was that my last foster parents, my foster mum, Sue, was a careers teacher, And so she asked me, what do you want to do? Nobody had ever asked me that before, you know, to actually give me a choice. And I gave her a list of like nine things that I wanted to do. I said, I want to be a baker. I want to be a chef. I want to work with children. I want to be a fashion designer. um, I want to be an actor. I think they were the ones. And she said, fashion design and acting can be very hard industries to get into. Why don't you start with a trade? And then we'll see. So I trained as a baker. By the time I'd left bakery school, A lot of the family-owned bakeries were closing down because the big supermarkets were coming in with their frozen baguettes from Paris and all that sort of stuff. And I just knew I didn't want to be involved in that. So then I switched to chefing. And then I worked as a chef, then went to drama school. So I was chefing kind of in the holidays of drama school and was very blessed that I got an agent straight away and ended up working on TV for three and a half years and then with the Royal Shakespeare Company and then with the National And I remember speaking with one of the actors in New York with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she was sharing with me how excited she was about playing Lady Macbeth at 40. And actually, I didn't think this at the time, but I remember just thinking, well, I'm never going to get to do that because I'm a black woman, number one. But also what I do remember thinking was, 
I don't think that's why I'm here. Like this is fun. Being an actor is fun and the money was great, but I didn't enjoy the fame, like the fame that comes with acting, which is where you're being lauded for not being yourself. It had taken me so long to own who I was. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life being other characters. So I realized actually the place I want to be right now is chefing. I want to go back to the kitchen. So I went back to the kitchen and I remember just sitting, you know, at the end of a Saturday night service where we had what I call the chef dance. So it's very busy in the restaurant and the chefs just have this beautiful dance around each other and everyone has their roles. And it was about midnight and we were sat down. I think I probably had a cider. I don't really drink beer. And I just remember just exhaling of just thinking, this is where I want to be right now. Acting was fun. It was a chapter. I have some very dear friends from that chapter of my life, but the kitchen was where I want to be. That led me to Thailand to work as a chef at an international resort. And then I met my husband and that was 20 years ago. And here I am in Australia. So I do want to make it clear that not all of those things happened at once. And I do believe in part of owning my narrative is that part of not having that stable grounding has given me this idea that we can move and things can move and change and it's okay. It is okay. And I love that you had that childhood conversation. And I love the response as well. The response wasn't, as at least how I heard it, no, you can't do any of those things. It was, okay, well, let's start here. Let's start with something practical uh, because the norming is so powerful and it, and it gives you the forefront of, of what is possible. What's really interesting about what you said is it felt to me, Kemi, that there were two really opposing forces at play there. You had this beautiful, broader vision, which felt like purpose to me when you were talking about it. You know, this is not why I'm here. I mean, I mean, for most people, it would be hallelujah, I'm acting. This is amazing. I'm getting paid for it too. And I'm going to be on TV. I mean, it doesn't get any better for, for a lot of people, right? Um, and, and so for you, it was this broader sense of purpose. I am meant to be doing other things, multiple things. You went out and did it. But at the same time, there was this opposing feeling that I got the sense of, which was a limiting belief. Oh, I don't think that's going to be me playing Macbeth at 40 because I'm black. And that's an assumption, Kemi. But if I'm right around that, how did you unpack those limiting beliefs? Because you've clearly moved straight past them. Well, it's interesting because I hadn't thought of that until you just asked me that question. I just answered it. One thing I from being fostered in my childhood was that I didn't have any dreams. I didn't dream of my wedding dress. I, I didn't dream of anything. I had a childhood of survival, which is also why I had a really ugly wedding dress, but that's a whole other conversation. But I don't think I thought at the time I'm not going to be Lady Macbeth so much because I'm black. It's more kind of looking back now, but that's probably, that was my internalized. I didn't have a conversation about it. That was just what was real. You know, it's like when I would experience racism as a child, I didn't ever tell an adult about it because I just assumed that's what happens when you're black. That's just how it is. And so for me, it was more of a case of I didn't actually know what I wanted to do instead of acting. All I had was I know what I love more than this. And it was playing with food. So that's what I went back to. And I have to say, though, as you said, because it's a lot of people's dreams, it was one of the most lonely and isolating times of my life to leave a career that one I never thought I'd really have, one that a lot of people want or strive to have and have an idea of what that looks like. And this sense of guilt, you know, like, who do you think you are to give up this thing that someone like you, you know, isn't necessarily seen in these spaces in this way and other people would kill to have this? Who do you think you are to give that up? 
And it was a really lonely time because I kept getting pulled back in because of other people's advice and opinions. And I was very financially rewarded for my jobs. And my dad, my last foster dad, wanted me to be financially stable. And so when I told him he was, I was leaving, he was not, his patriarchy came up because he wanted me to be safe and secure and all those sorts of things. So there was a lot to work through. And it is lonely when we decide to walk our own paths. And yet, if we're willing to take the first step, we, it sounds like a cliche, but I always say I believe in cliches. We have to leave to find the people that will support us on the new path. You're never going to find the support or the people unless you start walking in a different direction. Mm, and that's the power of self-awareness, isn't it? Where you're able to you know, negate some of this really helpful advice that other people are giving you. I mean, they're coming from their own constructs. They're coming from their own limitations as well. And usually they're only able to support you to the extent that they probably supported and sponsored their own dreams. But you're able to say, well, that probably won't work for you. That's not what's going to work for me. It sounds like a journey of 18 months, but that was certainly one of the moments that made you. 100%, 100%. I want to turn to the book now, Kemi, because it's, it's so incredible that we can't not talk about it and I know in your own podcast you talk about you know not sharing you know tips and and actions but you know really genuinely giving advice and I was going to ask you for a tip but I'm totally changing that now and denying that I was ever going to go there and ask you for a tip Um, (laughs) so we'll turn to advice then you talk about in your book power and if you haven't read it please go read it you touch on fear vulnerability and powerlessness so I'd love for you to share advice to our listeners on how they can navigate those same feelings, but also channeling that into power because you talked about cliches as well. And, you know, we talk about, you know, in order to to move through something, you've got to move through the fear. And we almost, I don't have the term for it, so I'm just going to call it whitewash. You know, we almost whitewash the word fear by saying it so eloquently. Um, and, and And we're not really owning just how darn, lonely, as you've said, dark and deep, that fear can actually be how debilitating that fear can actually be. And if you're going to wade through that, it's really easy to get stuck in there and then to actually move out and to channel into power. So I'd love your advice on how to do that. Well, one thing I'd love to do as well is just kind of give a little bit of context around the book, because I know for so many women, even just the concept of the word power is so alienating because we have a sense of what power is and that form of power is playing out in the world right now in devastating consequences. This idea that power is a finite resource and that I must have it and if I have it, you can't have it and I'll do whatever I can to make sure that you don't have it. I know that as women, we have had an internal power for eons. It's why we were burned at the stake. It's why there there are certain tools that are used in war to make sure that women feel powerless. And it shows that we have this innate power. So what I wanted to do with the book was, first of all, work out what does power actually mean, like the definition of the word. So the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word power is the ability to act or do something in a particular way. That is all it is. That means that we all have the ability to act or do something in a particular way. We all have power. And yet as women, that power is taken away from us. We don't believe that we have any. Sometimes because we're very smart and strategic, we give it away. And what I wanted to do in this book as someone that very much had a beginning of powerlessness within some of the homes that I was raised in, but with also within the constructs around patriarchy and misogyny and racism, 
of how we can take power and build it again and again. Not this idea that one day we'll wake up and we'll have power forever, but that we lose it for various reasons. And what we need to keep doing is knowing and owning that we can rebuild it at any one time. So, you know, it's Alice Walker that says the biggest mistake that people make about power is that they think they don't have any. And that's the first quote in the book. What I would love for women to do listening to this is to think about the times in their life when they have made, as we've been speaking about, some really difficult decisions. The word power I've broken down into an acronym, which is presence, ownership, wisdom, equality and responsibility. I can practically guarantee without knowing who is listening, without knowing the individual lives of the listeners, that somewhere in that hard decision was either you having to be present to what was working or not working in your life, you having to take ownership of your story in some way or another, having to tap into your innate wisdom, knowing that you are equal enough to the people around you to make that ask or leave that person or leave that situation and that you decided to take full responsibility of your life, which means when we can step into any of those principles, we are already stepping into a form of power. I love that so much, especially that you end on responsibility because we are the architects of our own life. And I know that sometimes we feel that, you know, we have all these, you know, headwinds and tailwinds and where the puppet's moving or, as I say, when you have, you know, lack of, when you don't invest in your self-awareness, you you are like a, a tree in the middle of a storm and you'll bend whichever way the, the wind is moving and you don't want that for yourself and you have the responsibility and the ability to be the director and producer of your own life, to use an acting analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so, you know, again, to use your words, it's so powerful to be able to realise that you own that. You know, in the work that I do with women, we, we do a survey and we we work out what people are motivated by and some women end up um, with power as their number one motivation and it's this they almost take it as an insult. <gasps> you said I was motivated by power. That must mean it. And not that they ever say it, but I can see it. You know, it's this stigma that that must mean that I am motivated by evil. No, power can be a phenomenal thing. Power can create, confuse, combine, and, you know, can fulfill the life for you and for others. 100%. The world needs female leaders in a way that it never has. And if we don't start to shift our internal narratives around who we have to be, who we should be, we are going to miss the incredible change that women already are making in the world, but that we can continue to make with and for each other in powerful, supportive ways. I love that. Kemi, you and I could talk all afternoon, if not all day, and I would love nothing more. We're running short of time, so I'm going to ask you one last question. Of course, this podcast is called Moments That Make Us. You've talked about so many moments that have made you. I wonder if you could share one or two other stories that you would love to leave with our listeners that have made you, that might incite a hope of inspiration for them. Okay, there's two that come to mind. They're they're vastly different. I, I believe they are. Maybe they're not. Number one was when I was 18 years old, I read the book Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. Now, I'm not sure, to be honest, the manuscript has really stood the test of time because I did try and read it about 10 years ago. It didn't have the same resonance. And that was the first time I had read a personal development book. And it showed me for the first time that you can create your own life and your own circumstances. I had never, ever heard anything like that. I had been raised very much to believe that you get what you're given and you make do with it. And the friends you have are the friends you have and the job you have is the job you have and that's just how it is. And when I read that book, I just knew, oh my gosh, I think this is true. 
I may not be able to do it now, the person that I am, but I want to be someone that creates my own life and isn't living by default. So that moment absolutely created me. And another one, which was maybe about five years ago, I'm a big, big fan of Country Style magazine because I grew up in Kent in the English countryside. And I was flicking through that magazine. It always used to be my happy place. And I saw this picture of a woman with a massive bunch of roses over her shoulder. So you didn't see her face. You just saw the roses. And she had a pair of secretaires in her hand. And I looked at this picture and I read the headline. It said, and this week we are talking to so-and-so, a flower farmer. And I just had this physiological reaction. And I just knew, one, I hadn't thought about flowers have to be farmed in some way. And two, I'm going to do that. And so at the end of 2020, my husband and I bought a beautiful farm an hour out of Melbourne. And this year, I have just started experimenting with David Austin roses, peonies and hydrangeas with the idea to become a micro-organic flower farmer in a few years. So that is another moment that has changed me because I know through coaching that we can be many things, maybe not all at the same time, but we, which is why I'm just playing at the moment. We don't live on the farm yet. We will in a few years once our kids have left school and that we do get to create our journeys and they don't have to look like anyone else's. I can be a keynote speaker and an author and a coach and flower farm and be someone that naps nearly every single day and not do busy. It's possible. I can't tell you how much I love that. And it's funny, Kemi, you said two very diverse answers, but there was a thread there that you are the master of your own destiny and and, and you can do that. You had the realisation that you can be the master of your own destiny with that book. And then you learned about flowers being farmed and you went, and I can do that too. I mean, <laughs> why not add that to my very diverse career that I've got? And I can and I will. I absolutely love it. Kemi, of course, the, the podcast is called Moments That Make Us. I've been writing notes, but I've got to say I'm entirely unprepared. I'm just going to wing this. I want to give you a few moments that have made me go, aha, in this short time, short but incredibly inspirational time that we've spent together. I have learned that we can do whatever it is that we want to do in life, that we can rewrite our destiny simply by investing in ourselves, that you took the time to read that book. You took the time to synthesize it, to take a moment to say, what does this mean to me? What am I going to do about it? I have learned that you can be unashamedly you. You don't have to conform to the narratives of being a black woman. You don't need to conform to the the narratives of being brought up in England or anything and everything in between. You can simply be Kemi and that could mean anything and everything, including listening to Dolly Parton, who of course we love. How can we? (laughs) How can we not? And the other thing is you said something around, you know, who the hell do I think I am to say no to something that... Uh, was so incredible and and would be so many people's you know goals and ambitions around acting and and what I got from that is who do you think you are you are you and you choose what it is that is right for you you choose and you filter the advice that you get from people and you make it work for you you don't have to take everyone else's opinions on and live through that I got so much more but I'm conscious that that is all the time that we have the one and only Kemi Nekvapil thank you so much for sharing this time with us today Oh, thank you, Siobhan. It's been an absolute delight to spend time with you. I could listen to you all day. Oh, and likewise. <laughs>